turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. A very special guest joining us today on the program. In fact, one whose voice is quite familiar to our listeners. He is the founding and senior pastor of Calvary Chapel of Fremont, and it's a delight to have Pastor Tim Brown join us on the program. And Pastor Brown, is always good to see you. Craig, it's good to see you, good to be with you, and thank you for having me today. My, my, I was just thinking about our conversation, getting ready to visit with you today, the number of legacies or milestones that you're about to uh, to approach here shortly. I understand that you and your lovely wife, Fran, have been married 46-something years, so that big five-zero rapidly approaching. You've yeah. been involved in ministry, I understand, coming up next year, 50 years in one fashion or another, and then having served as the founding pastor of Calvary Chapel of Fremont um, in a couple of scant years, 25 years. That's uh, quite a list of milestones you're reaching. Yeah, in a couple months, it'll be 26 years. Wow. I think uh, only Pastor Terry Inman from Harbor Light has been uh, ministering in our city since uh, uh, I've come. You have undoubtedly seen a lot of remarkable changes happening, not only in the greater Bay Area, but certainly in uh, in the town you call home in Fremont down through the years. Uh, give us your sense in terms of how those changes, both economic with the, the rapid rise of the impact and influence of Silicon Valley, the changing demographics of people coming from literally all over the world to find here in the Bay Area work and uh, a future and a family and a home, how have some of these changes impacted the way Calvary Chapel Fremont does ministry? Calvary Chapel Fremont, and I think for the most part, probably the, the, the Calvary Chapel mentality, uh, doesn't have a sense of a, of a quota system, meaning that um, we're not out to target. Now, this would this would obviously vary with with different pastors but we're out to pastor our community um i'll go out with my grandkids to to any park and there might be 60 kids and uh, 40 parents there and i'll look around and i realize i'm the only white man there i'm the only caucasian there uh the the vast majority are filipino and chinese there'll be some uh, middle eastern some Hispanic. And and I, I say that I'm surprised at that because it really doesn't register on my consciousness until about halfway through through that experience. And it's certainly not an uncomfortable experience, but it just uh, goes to underscore uh, the question that you've asked concerning the changing demographics. I think I've been like the, the frog in the kettle, if you would, uh, where the water is heated up and heated up, and I, I've not even noticed it—the changing, the changing demographics uh, around me. Our church certainly reflects the diversity of our community. We have Chinese, Filipino, 
uh, Indian, uh, Hispanic, African American, uh, a few smattering of other ethnicities, and then uh, there are some of us Caucasians. Um, but again, it doesn't uh, it doesn't even strike my consciousness until someone draws attention to it, because I'm so at home in it. But as I but as I think back to 26 years ago, I'm sure that. Uh, everyone who began the church with us in January of 1997 wasn't Caucasian, but no doubt the majority were. And um, as Calvary Chapel has taken root here in the city, and as we've just pursued the Calvary Chapel philosophy of ministry and style of ministry, more and more people have been attracted to that of various uh, ethnicities. Um, a number of years ago, I got the ethnic men in our church together, and I, and I asked them, are we as a church doing something that would inherently uh, offend your, your, your race, your ethnicity, your people? Uh, mixed seating, um, some of the songs that we sing, maybe the relaxed, uh, casual style of clothing that, uh, that is worn. And they all said, no, 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 no. And then I, I said, uh, should we offer some kind of, you know, maybe, maybe once a month, you know, ethnic snacks, you know, uh, Indian snacks, Filipino snacks. And they just all laughed at me. And they said, donuts are the international language of snacks. <laughs> so I thought, all right, well, we're, we're there. <laughs> so, yeah, it, we, we, it's changed. And we have changed with it. But it's not been a calculated strategy on our part. If you think back to the early, early days, I'm going back into the 1970s now, early 70s, with Chuck Smith's ministry. And the work there on the coast of California, where oftentimes you would have no idea who would show up for a service on a Sunday. Folks typically showed up in those days almost shockingly in very casual clothing as opposed to the sort of more traditional coat and tie sort of approach with women all in hats. Boy, I'm really <laughs> dating myself <laughs> when I recall those days. But that sense of simply presenting the gospel as it is, because the gospel inherently is intended for all people, all races, all kinds, all ethnicities. And if you just preach the pure love of Christ— and this wonderful love that God has shown toward us that he would send his only begotten son to die on our behalf, when folks are being able to capture that, when the Holy Spirit quickens that truth to their heart, it, it really it really surpasses all bloodlines in a sense because it's really only about one blood, and that is Christ's blood. So, to talk to me about that notion of sort of built into the DNA of every Calvary chapel has been those historical roots, as I say, going back 50, 60 years now almost, that have always said, come one, come all, we're just about the gospel. Yeah. Well, in the late 60s, uh, Orange County, California, it had the largest number of 18 to 25-year-olds of anywhere in the world. Uh, and uh, back then, obviously, it was the hippie generation, drug, sex, and rock and roll. And Pastor Chuck went to a little church uh, called Calvary Chapel. Twenty-five members had uh, uh, called him and uh, hired him to come and be their pastor. And he just began to preach the Bible verse by verse, which was not unique 
but it certainly was uncommon. And Chuck's uh, approach to teaching the scripture, along with his own personal charisma and style and that uh, incredible voice that God had gifted him with, and just the love of God that he had put in him, uh, within twelve, within uh, four years, that church had grown 12,000 members. It, it was amazing. And uh, basically, uh, it was the hippies. And then when the parents saw the change in their kids, uh, they said, hey, what's going on here? You know, is this a cult? And they would go and they would experience the love of God and just the simple, powerful teaching of the Word of God. Uh, take a moment, if you would. Give us sort of the, uh, what do they say, the 30-second elevator talk about uh, life and ministry at Calvary Chapel in Fremont. Now, you're meeting Sunday mornings, I understand, at 10 a.m. and a midweek service, Wednesdays at 6.45 p.m. But uh, give us kind of a thumbnail sketch as to uh, the life of the church, the body of Christ at Calvary of uh, Fremont. Yeah, we, we have a lot of young family. We probably maybe have 175 adults on a Sunday morning and maybe 75, maybe even 100 kids. I mean, uh, someone had said when the Lord said, be fruitful and multiply, that's the only command mankind has ever obeyed. And uh, it's being obeyed at our church for sure. A lot of young families, uh, older folks in between, glorious youth group and children's ministry. Um, I've been noticing uh, people have been hanging out and fellowshipping after church, sometimes for up to an hour. But now some of them are staying an hour and a half. I mean, you see these significant groups of people talking together and praying together of all nationality, uh, of all ages. And it's just a glorious thing that uh, the Lord is doing. Craig, you had made mention earlier about um, uh, this opportunity that the body of Christ has right now. I think two things are happening. I think we're going to be seeing growing division in the churches because of cultural and ideological causes. But at the same time, I see a constant hope for the Church of Jesus Christ breaking out in revival and God doing tremendous things in the body of Christ around the world as we seek his face. Because he has He has those who haven't bound the knee. He has those who are constantly seeking his face. And I think, believe times of refreshing are on their way from the Lord as we just wait upon him. So it's a joy to pastor. It's a joy to... These people are lovely people, glorious people, enthusiastic. They love Jesus. And it's, they make they make pastoring a joy. And it has been a joy visiting with you today. Pastor Tim Brown, Senior Pastor, Calvary Chapel, Fremont. Again, service time Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. with a midweek service Wednesdays at 6.45 p.m. They meet at 42986 Osgood Road in the city of Fremont. You can call them at area code 510-656-8979. That's 510-656-8979. Or easier still, find them on the web at Calvary Fremont. That's calvaryfremont.org. And our thanks to founding pastor, senior pastor of Calvary Chapel, Fremont, Pastor Tim Brown, for being being with us today. Pastor Tim, great to see you again. Thank you for being, uh, thank you for having me. And one addendum, on Monday night, October 31st, from 5.30 to 8.30, we have our Jesus Loves Me Harvest Festival. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come out. Everything is free. Uh, Candy, uh, booths, hot dogs, churros, mariachi band. It's going to be awesome. 
we invite you out. That sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun and a great and safe alternative to the typical of October 31st Halloween uh, festivities. Again, that's taking place at Calvary Chapel Fremont on the web at calvaryfremont.org. In seeing God's beauty, he saw the ugliness of his own life. In, In looking at the Lord's purity, he saw the uncleanness of his own soul. And so last week we looked at the cleansing of Isaiah after that vision of his own ruin because he cries out, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And today we're going to look at the commissioning of Isaiah where he hears the Lord saying, "Uh, who will go for us? And he says, here am I, I volunteer. I'm going to be going. So what we see here though in uh, verses 1 through 8 of Isaiah chapter 6, it's a pattern of how God works throughout all of time. You won't see your uncleanness unless you see the majesty, the beauty of God. And if you don't see your uncleanness, you won't see your need of cleansing. And if you're not cleansed, you won't be commissioned. See, God doesn't send smug, self-satisfied people into the ministry. God doesn't send smug, self-satisfied people to their neighbors to share Christ. God wants to touch your life. God wants to cleanse you. God wants you to see that you are His servant. You're His ambassador. You're His representative. And having been touched by the Lord, having been cleansed by the Lord, then going out uh, and and, and being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So here here in verse 8, we see Isaiah's call to the ministry. Now I want to point out a couple of things here before we get in, before I get into the Uh, the meat of the message. And I was looking, and as I was studying the passage here, I had to ask myself, why would God even ask this question? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? I mean, who can counsel the Lord? Whose permission does he need? You know, if I can get 51% of the angels in heaven to raise their hands and say, it's Isaiah, then we'll send Isaiah. But if not, I'll have to choose someone else. God doesn't need anybody's counsel. He doesn't need anybody's wisdom. He doesn't need anybody's um, um, permission for it at all. But the thing is this. I think if Isaiah ever complained, the Lord could say, well, you volunteered for this, right? Uh, Who will go? Me, 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 I'll go. And uh, you can't back out. It's not like I put you in a headlock like I did Moses back in uh, Exodus 3 and 4. It's not like I compelled you like I did Moses. You volunteered. You volunteered for this gig. You signed up for the thing. And so if you have anybody to uh, complain to, if you have anybody to gripe to about the challenges in your life being a servant of the Lord, just yourself. Because you said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. And I know that when God touched my life, I said, not in so many ways. I didn't articulate it like this, but here am I. Send me. I want to go. I want to go. And so, can I say that the Lord called me into ministry? I would say yes. Would I say that He compelled me against my will? I would have to say no. I volunteered when I heard the call. And so many of you know what I'm talking about. You've, you've heard the call, you've had a vision, there's been an impression, there's been a burden, there's been a plan, there's just this desire within you that's burning to go serve, to go do this, to go do that. It happens to so many people in so many different ways, and yet it's God laying something upon your heart. 
And the response that he desires is the response that he had from Isaiah. Here am I, send me. You also notice there in verse 8 where he said, um, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Now, there's a lot of speculation about who the us is. Some would say that it's the Trinity. Let's get that up there. Some would say, well, that's the Trinity. Some would just say, well, it's just the host of heaven. Because the word angel means what? Messenger. And any divine being that is sent to speak to humankind is a messenger of God. Uh, when, when you go and share the gospel, you know, the, the word angel, uh, or the, the word gospel, is evangelion. It comes from the word angel. It means good message. An angel's a messenger, comes with the evangelion, the, the good news, the good message of Jesus Christ. An angel is a messenger of the gospel. You're all angels. Believe it or not, you're sitting next to an angel. And you're going to knock it off. That's bad theology. No, it's good. It's good theology. It might be a bad thought for you, but it's good theology. This room is full of angels, messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, hopefully now, though, as angels, as sons and daughters of God, we're all on the same page as God. We all want the will of God. And every angel, every divine being in heaven is on the same page with God. And so I think it could be very, very possible that he's, he's talking out and the whole host of heaven is saying, uh, is hearing him saying, who will go for us? And in us, he means the whole host of heaven because they are on the same page with God. They have the same purpose of God. And who knows, when he asked that question, maybe a, a billion angels' hands went up. Ooh, 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 send me, choose me, pick me. I want to go, I want to go. But then Isaiah spoke up. Here am I, send me. He heard the word of the Lord. Now the flow of the chapter is this. Isaiah saw the Lord. He said, woe is me. And then he said, here am I. He went from seeing how unlike God he was to seeing himself as a partner with God, as a representative of the Lord. And this can only come through the cleansing that he received. See, the touch of of the coal upon his lips, there in, in, in verse 7, 6 and 7, that changed everything for Isaiah. His whole life, the whole world, his whole understanding of, of what value is, his whole understanding of eternity in the universe, it changed once that coal touched his lips. Isaiah was now eager to go for God because that one touch it changed everything. That one touch of the coal from the altar, what, one second, two seconds, I don't know how long it lasted in terms of time. But that one touch did more than all the priests, all the prophets, all the sermons, all the Sunday schools could have done in his life and in your life. I am so desirous, I'm so jealous that you received the touch of God. On your life. And not just in a theological way that I know God is there. Yes, I believe Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again. I confess Him as my Lord and Savior. That's all good. We all need to be soaked in the truth of God. My prayer for you, my desire for you, my, my jealousy for you, 
is that you experientially, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Moses, like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Michael, all of these guys, they were touched by God. And that changed everything. James and John and Peter and Andrew, they're out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they'd been in contact with Jesus before. They'd been following him and they heard his teaching. But it didn't change their life. They, they just went to uh, went back to uh, fishing. And the speculation was, well, could this be Messiah? I don't know if it could be Messiah or not. Well, what about this? What about that? And But life just went on. Maybe more full of wonder now. But nothing changed. But then Jesus came and said to Peter and Andrew, follow me. And in one second of time, everything changed. To James and John, follow me. In one second, one second of time, the whole world was different for them. There's Matthew sitting at his uh, tax booth. Follow me, Matthew. In one second of time, everything changed. Um, I've told you about this before, but when I have couples in my office for marital counseling, uh, they could have been married 20 years. They've hated each other's guts for 19 years. But um, So, you know, just half a lifetime full of complaint and... Uh, full of sorrow and full of anger and resentment and tension. Um, but I know, I, I tell them, your marriage can change in one second of time. You might need more counseling. We need to meet together again, all that kind of stuff. But in one second of time, this whole thing can change. It can turn around. Isaiah was touched in one second of time, everything changed. All of the apostles who were called, many of you. I was down in West Covina, January 3rd, 1972, and God came to me, and in one second of time, my whole life, everything changed for me. My value, my vision, my direction, the trajectory of my life, everything changed in one second of time. And so here is Isaiah in, in, in verse 5 going, woe is me, I'm ruined. And in just a couple of verses later, everything's changed. Here am I, send me. God is so, God, God is so good. And one touch from God. Uh, we love Brittany, we love Maya, but one touch from God is better than all the Brittany's and Maya's in the world. And don't forget, one touch from God is better than all the Pastor Tim's uh, in the world. I am so jealous for this touch, the hand of God upon your life. And so Isaiah here, he goes from woe is me to here am I. And these really are two opposite states of being. This is why everything changed. It's not just like Isaiah got touched by the coal and walks away and goes, cool, I'm forgiven now. And I can go back to my life. It's not that. These are two different modes of being, two different modes of living and of vision. And you can't live in both at the same time. You can't say, woe is me, and here am I. You can only say one or the other. They're two opposite, two di diametrically opposed ways of living and states of being. See, without this vision, without this vision, 
Um, Isaiah may have been called into the ministry. I don't know. He may have become a prophet. I don't know. But he very possibly could have become very pharisaical, not seeing his own personal ruin, but only self-righteousness on his part. He only would have seen his exemplary morality. Morality. Boy, I've been following God from my youth up, and uh, uh, I, you know, I, I do the Ten Commandments, and I offer the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the burnt offering, the um, uh, grain offering, free will. I do it all. I show up for Passover. I show up for Pentecost. I show up for the uh, Feast of Booths, and I, I do it all. I follow the Old Testament to a T. And he could have congratulated himself because of his self-righteousness. I know why God put me in the ministry. Because I follow the law better than anybody else. And had that been, had that been the case, he would not have pursued holiness of life. He would have only striven to live morally. See, the, the natural mind equates holiness with morality. And that would have been his ministry. He would have been preaching the law. He would have been preaching morality. Hey, you're out of line. Get in line. Uh, You're doing this. Stop doing that. Start doing this. Follow the rules. And his ministry would have just been one of following uh, the rules. The natural mind equates holiness with morality. But morality is concerned with right and wrong and good behavior. That's what morality is. It's focused on behavior. You know... You can, you cannot murder someone and still still be full of hatred. Not murdering someone, I guess, makes you moral. I mean, I prefer if you rather, I'd rather have you hate me in your heart than murder me. All right, but but following the Ten Commandments, not murdering someone, that can render you moral because that's good behavior, not to murder someone. Right? I think that's pretty good. And but you can be full of hate for people. So on, on one sense, there's morality. On the other, in the other sense, your heart's full of unholiness. You're morally behaving yourself, but on the inside, like Isaiah cried out, "I'm ruined." I see the corruption of my heart. I see the hate of my heart. And you can live in sexual purity, never touching anybody that you shouldn't. And still be full of lust on the inside. You can live morally, sexually, and yet be full of lust and and, and corruption and perversion on the inside. So there can be outward morality and there can be inward uh, unholiness. Um, Morality doesn't require you to die to yourself. Holiness does. Morality doesn't require you to die to yourself, but holiness does. And this is what Isaiah saw when he saw the Lord. He saw his own unholiness. And there's no doubt in my, in my mind that Isaiah was a very moral man before Isaiah chapter 6. He was a very moral man before the Lord called him. No doubt he was an exemplary Jew. No doubt he kept the temple uh, rites fastidiously. He followed the Ten Commandments and the other 603 commandments. He was a, It's not that God took an immoral man and put him in the ministry. Again, I think Isaiah was quite an upstanding Jew before the Lord called him into the ministry. But he wasn't required to die to himself. 
And that's the ruin that he saw. You know, the Bible does not say, pursue morality without which no man will see the Lord. It says, pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. But I think a lot of people understand that as pursue morality without, without which no man will see the Lord. You know, many people's hope of heaven, and even some of you in here, your hope of heaven is your morality. Morality never got anybody into heaven. God is not impressed with you following the rules. God is not impressed with you knowing the difference between right and wrong and good and bad and conforming yourself to the right and to the good. It's not pursue morality. It's pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Again, Isaiah was not an immoral man. He didn't see God in Isaiah chapter 6 and then promise not to be drunk anymore or to womanize anymore. I think he was a very moral man. But he saw the inner landscape of his soul. He saw his unholiness. You know, equating holiness with morality is like equating Mission Peak uh, with Mount Everest. Uh, we know that Mission Peak probably is the uh, most prominent uh, landmark of Fremont, except maybe for the Bay. But that's that way, and Mission Peak is that way. Um, Mission Peak, I didn't know it, I looked it up, it's 2,900 feet above sea level. So when you're at the top of Mount, uh, at, at top of Mission Peak, you're 2,900 feet. Um, let me say Mount Zion. Mount, Mount Everest, over 10 times that high. Now you might think that when you're at the top, how, how many have, have been to the top of Mission Peak? All right, a good, good number of you. You might think when you're, I've been up there once. It was a lot harder <laughs> of a walk than I thought it would be. Uh, you can get up, amen. <laughs> you, you can get up there and think, I'm at the top of the world. Actually, you're just 10% of the way there. That's, that's, I can't imagine the height there uh, of, of Mount Everest. Um, Mission Peak, though, doesn't have a death zone. Mount Everest does. Anything above 26,350 feet or 8,000 meters, that's the death zone. So that... When you're hiking up there, that's the death zone. And, and hikers have to take uh, oxygen. There are very, very few who don't need oxygen. Uh, most of the Sherpas don't because they're acclimated to the high, to the high altitude. Uh, but when you, if you go hiking up Mount Everest, you're going to find dead bodies everywhere. And you, you just pass them up. Because if you stop to try to render aid or to take them down, you're going to die too. And so it's littered with corpses. In fact, uh, when I was looking for, I just I just Googled Google Images death zone on Mount uh, Everest, and they showed me a map of where all the bodies are on Mount. Mount. Interesting. Not that I'll ever be there to check it out, but uh, yeah, I just there must be a couple hundred up there in different parts uh, of the mountain. Um, some fall, even though they might have had oxygen, but most of them, uh, their, their oxygen deprived, their, their oxygen ran out. And when you get into the death zone, uh, the oxygen level there is so thin that the cells of your body begin to die. 
I mean, your body is actually dying. Now, we're told that the minute you're born, you start to die, right? So I guess we're all dying right now. Uh, and cells in our body are dying, and they're being replaced. But up there, they begin to die at an accelerated pace, so much so that your body can't keep pace in reproducing those cells that have died. And so many uh, hikers, their judgment becomes impaired. They can experience heart attack and strokes, severe altitude sickness. So they need another source of oxygen. And so I'm sure all of us have seen pictures of uh, climbers, if not on Everest, at other high altitudes with their little canisters of oxygen hanging from their back or on their side uh, to assist them climbing up there. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That's what Isaiah is doing here in Isaiah 6, 7, and 8. We can interpret it and understand it that way. Take up your cross and follow me. And what I've discovered is that the cross is the death zone. Because what does the cross do to you? What did it do to Jesus? It killed him. So Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Had he died in the electric chair, he would say, uh, pick up your electric chair and follow me. Had he been killed by the French during the revolution, he'd say, take up your guillotine and follow me. But these are, these are instruments that, that, that minister death, that mete out death. The cross of Jesus Christ is a death-dealing kind of thing. And uh, we've all seen maybe pretty cool pictures of, you know, taking up your cross and following Jesus. Uh, but that, that's a death sentence on the flesh. Taking up the cross of Jesus. It's like being in the death zone with Jesus. Um, see, only if Christ is your life, only if you're breathing in and out Christ, it's your, uh, we, we sang, uh, it's your breath in my lungs, uh, so I sing out your praise, I sing out your praise. Um, the, 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 the God's Spirit sustaining us moment by second by day, you know, just living in the Holy Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So when Jesus said, come and take up your cross, he was inviting you and me into the death zone. And we're told that Paul the Apostle followed Jesus into the death zone. Keep your place here in Isaiah and look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It might be a passage some of you have memorized. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says there, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. And so the I, the ego, the self, has been crucified. But it's Christ who lives in me. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so Paul is living out his, his, his Christianity. He's living out his uh, apostolic ministry. He's living it out in the death zone, putting to death the, the flesh, the self, and putting to death the deeds of of, of the flesh. God doesn't, God doesn't call us to morality. Can I say that without being a heretic? 
uh, he calls us to holiness. Because holiness includes morality. I mean, you can't be holy and un, uh, immoral at the same time. You can be moral and unholy, but you can't be holy and immoral. Just like you, you can be at the top of uh, Mission Peak and have not yet attained to the 29,032 feet of Mount Everest. But if you're at the top of the 29,032 peak of Mount Everest, you, you've swallowed up Mission Peak, right? You're at the top and 10 times even greater uh, than that. Uh, God doesn't call us to morality. Morality is behavior. Holiness is being. Morality is outer Holiness is inner. Listen, even as a climb up Mission Peak is probably doable for 99% of us here. But for us to ascend to Everest, uh, there might be uh, one in here that uh, would want to or could, or maybe, maybe a few of you, if you really put your minds to it and strengthened yourself and learned mountain climbing and all that kind of stuff and acclimated to the height. Um, morality is easy. If Christianity were just about morality, wow. So many of you were moral before coming to Jesus Christ. Now some of you are, were immoral. We know who you are. Uh, but uh, a lot of us were, were, were moral in terms of just you know, not doing to others what we don't want them to do to us and uh, not murdering and lying and stealing and all that kind of stuff. But we certainly didn't live lives of holiness. Morality is so easy. Morality is behavior. Holiness is being. Morality is outer. Holiness is inner. Who were the most meticulously moral people in Jesus' day? Who do you think? It was the Pharisees. Who were the unholiest people in Jesus' day? Same ones. Same one. You, you can be meticulously moral and incredibly corrupt on the inside. And that's what Jesus said of them. You're whitewashed sepulchers. You look good on the outside, but paint, you know, you got your you got all the glitter, you got all the gold, you got everything going on the outside of you, but inside you're full of what? Dead men's bones. Jesus said that. You guys look good on the inside, but on the in inside, outside, but on the inside, boy, you guys really stink. The, thus, the words of Jesus there. Uh, morality leaves self intact. Holiness crucifies the flesh. Morality left the Pharisees self intact. They're full of lust and greed and murder and hatred and unforgiveness. Now, you might have had people sin against you and you've let it go, but you're full of bitterness. You're full of resentment. You're full of regret and full of sorrow. And you consider yourself quite moral that you're not giving them payback for what they did to you. And, and congrats on that. I mean, there's something to be said about that. But at the same time, you've let it ruin you on the inside. Guess what? They won, not you. Because the damage, the acid of resentment, the corrosion of hatred is just gutting out your soul. The Lord calls us to holiness. That will overact all of that. That changes all of that. Take up your cross and follow me.
Morality leaves self intact. Holiness crucifies the flesh. When you are a top mission peak, you are nowhere near the peak of Everest. And when you act morally, you are nowhere near holiness. So many congratulate themselves on their morality. You can look at um, surveys. Uh, here's here's uh, a thousand people who consider themselves born-again Christians. And probably half of them are depending upon their good deeds to get them to heaven. After listening to all the preaching, you know, if you go to church uh, every Sunday for a year, that'll be 52 Sundays, right? In 10 years, that's 520 Sundays. In 20 years, it's a thousand, you've heard a thousand sermons. And if you go to midweek studies and listen to the radio and TV and the podcasts and everything that's out there, who knows how many thousands of studies that you've listened to? Who knows how many times you've heard we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? You cannot save yourself. Nothing you do can commend you to God. And yet, when the question is asked, will your good works get you to heaven? Yes, they will. I'm just still depending on me. And the whole message of the gospel is you can't depend upon yourself. You have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. God is not impressed with your morality. Pursue after holiness without which no man will see the Lord. So when you act morally, you are nowhere near holiness. As we looked at last week, you minister out of what God has touched in your life. And if Isaiah had never was never touched by the coal, he all he would have known was the law and morality. And that's what he that's what he would have ministered out of. He would always denounce others and not his own sins. Because he would be impressed with himself. Look, I do the Ten Commandments and the other 603, and I attend temple, I do the sacrifices, all the feast days, everything prescribed by Moses. Boy, I'm running in that lane. And he'd be proud of that. And, and that's what he would minister to others. If all you know is law, you minister law. If all you know are rules, you minister rules. But if you know the grace of God and the mercy of God has touched your life. And there's people all around you who have failed. Failed in their morality. Failed in their marriages. Failed uh, in their relationships. Failed in their speech, failed in their thoughts, failed in their motives. I, I love that last song we sang, which was um, uh, yeah, um, it was really good. Uh, <laughs> meet me. God is in this place, right? The Lord, the Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. Come, Holy Spirit. And what I was thinking, just standing over there waiting. Uh, to come up to the pulpit was that whatever place you're in this morning God is in that place Jesus are you are you depressed this morning Jesus is in that place remember when he sweated drops of blood in Gethsemane and the Bible tells us the Greek word used is the word depression he was depressed as he considered the cross and what lay before him just within 24 hours. And he began to cry out to God. And, and, and blood, and, and it's a, an identified scientific medical uh, um, uh, experience 
people have sweated blood before. They're in such great uh, misery and in such great tension. Jesus, he's been more depressed than you are. He's, he's in that place. Have you been abandoned and betrayed? Jesus is in that place. Have you been misunderstood and, and, and maligned and lied against? Jesus is in that place. Have you had people try to kill you, plotting against you, always seeking to undermine you, always lying about you? The Lord's in that place. And you say, well, you might not understand, Pastor. Um, I'm on the other side of the wall. I'm the one who's lying. I'm the one who's trying to murder. I'm the one who stole. I'm the one that is in sexual sin. I'm the one who is full of dead men's bones. Certainly the Lord hasn't been in that place. Certainly he has. For he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. He knows what it's like to have the wrath of God upon him because of sin. Uh, the transgression that was due to people, it all fell upon Jesus. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has uh, gone to his own way. But the Lord has laid our iniquity on him. The Bible doesn't say he was a sinner, but he became sin. And he knows the bitterness of that. He knows the, the emptiness of that. He knows the guilt of that. He knows the fear of that. As, as the wrath of God came down upon him. Not just at the cross, but even beforehand. As he was being you know, whipped and beard plucked out. And came before Pilate and then Herod. And then mocked by the soldiers and all of that. That was all the wrath of God being poured out on him. No matter where you are this morning, the Lord is in that place. Not just via the doctrine of omnipresence, that he's everywhere, you know, his, his center is everywhere, his circumference is, is nowhere, he's no more present here than he is on Mars, that kind of thing. He's, he, he's, if he's omnipresent, then he's everywhere in the same degree. God doesn't become more eternal here and less eternal on Mars. God is not more deity here and less deity on Mars. God is everywhere in His fullness. He doesn't thin out towards the edge of the universe. You know, as you go up Mount Everest, your oxygen can run out, but God will never run out. There's just as much God at the top of Mount Everest as there is on the top of uh, uh, Mission Peak over here. God, there's no diminution in Him. He's at His fullness everywhere. God is in that place. Again, not just by the doctrine of omnipresence, but by the doctrine of His own life lived in the flesh. He knows what we've gone through. He's, he's tasted of our weaknesses. He's choked on our dust. He's ate our food. He's slept in our beds. He's walked our road. All of that. God. God is in that place. The Lord knows exactly where you are. And... Um, Isaiah here, he wouldn't have known had God not touched him. He would not really have known the Lord the way the Lord wants to be known. And he just would have ministered the law and, and rules. But now Jesus walking in our, in, our, in our footsteps, walking in our sandals, 
being full of grace and mercy. He knows how to dispense that to you right where you're at. Jesus isn't calling you and me to law-keeping. He's not calling you and me to morality. He's calling us to mercy, to grace, which is then the introduction into holiness of life. Isaiah would have denounced uh, sin. If, if, if he had never been touched by the Lord, he would have denounced sin, which is not sin, which is what the Pharisees did. They denounced sin, which was not sin. The disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. It's not a sin. But the Pharisees said, you're sinning. Jesus healed a, uh, a lame man, a man with a withered hand on a Saturday, on a Sabbath. And to the Pharisees, that was sin. See, when all you know is morality, the rules grow and grow and grow, and sin grows and grows and grows. But Jesus was walking in the grace and the mercy of God. Isaiah here, if he had never been touched by the splinter, by, by the uh, coal, he would see the splinter in the other's eyes and never the log that, when his, that was in his own eye. And the world around us doesn't mean more rules, a greater emphasis on morality. They need the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And then as they're converted and brought into Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit puts within them, puts within you and me, a desire for holiness, holiness after the Lord. God does not send moral men and moral women. He sends holy men and holy women whose inner landscape has been transformed and is being transformed. When God sent me into ministry, I had an understanding of holiness. But now, 40 years later, I have a much deeper understanding of what that is. Um, we're all familiar with that trajectory in Paul's thought. When he was uh, first saved and first in the ministry, um, he said that uh, he was the greatest of the apostles. And then later on in his life, he said, I am the least of the apostles. And then later on, I'm the chief sinner. <laughs> he just came, became more and more acquainted with the heart of God. He became, and in doing that, he became more and more acquainted with the corruption of his own life and of his own heart. And so we have been transformed, but we keep on being transformed by the Holy Spirit. From glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. See, the failure we see in ministry today is not a failure of morality. It's a, it's a failure of holiness. So when you turn on the news or you get your email and pastor so-and-so or evangelist so-and-so or theologian so-and-so has fallen into adultery or they've uh, covered this sin up or they've stolen the money or whatever it happens to be, that is not a failure of morality, th though it is. At root, it's a failure of holiness. It's a failure of following after the heart of God. And I'm convinced, I've told you this before, that a man does not go to bed in love with Jesus and in love with his wife one night and then the next day goes, com goes and commits adultery. There is a process a long process within his soul and with women within their souls 
of, of compromises and what ifs and what about this and what about that and, and you begin to see when you start off you can never ever see yourself touching someone not your spouse but then there's a decay that sets in and in your thought life in, in, in your motives you begin to cross lines that you never would have crossed six months ago but because of corruption, because of allowing thoughts to have their own life within you, you begin to uh, begin to uh, just erode on the inside. And so, when a woman touches another man, when a man touches another woman, that is that's not the beginning of an extramarital affair. That that's the next step because something has eroded and, and totally gone to hell on the inside of a person before that happens. We're called the holiness of life. God doesn't send moral men in ministry and women into the ministry, but holy men and women. Again, the failure that we see in ministry today, it's not a failure of morality, it's a failure of holiness. And so again, God is not calling you to greater morality. He's calling you to holiness. And holiness is as much higher and greater than morality as Mount Everest is than Mission Peak. You'll never get to heaven by your morality, nor will you get to heaven by your holiness. You're not saved by holiness. You're saved for holiness of life. God doesn't look at the inside of you and think, well, now you're, you're, you're eligible to be saved. When you and I are saved, we're utterly corrupt inside and out. But now that the, we're converted to Christ, we've been convicted of our sin, the Holy Spirit lives in us. We pursue after holiness without which no man sees, sees the Lord. Now it's interesting, and I'm going to close on this. I was going to do verses through verse 13, but... We're going to stop at verse 8. I cut it off in my studies this morning. Um, Jesus, and I'm going to bring this out more later too. Jesus, in his ministry, had almost the same trajectory as Isaiah. Because as we're going to see next week, Isaiah was promised that you're going to fail in your ministry. You're going to preach repentance, no one's going to repent. You're going to preach revival, no one's going to be revived. Thanks for that, Lord. You know, so for, for 30, 40 years, you're going to be a, a ministry failure. No one's going to write a book on you about how to be successful in ministry. Because you won't be. But you'll be faithful in bringing the truth before Israel. And that's what Jesus did. Was Jesus successful in converting Israel? No. Gigantic failure. And yet, he wasn't able to convert Israel, but he saved the world, right? Uh, because whosoever believes in Jesus, whosoever believes in Jesus. Had, you know, had Jesus converted Israel, um, would they have crucified him? Uh, there's some interesting articles written on that. Had, had all of the Israel gone after him like the disciples did? And he would say, now the prophecy says you need to crucify me. No, how can we do that? You're the Messiah. You're our king. We're not going to crucify you. It's just very interesting how that, that would have played out had Israel been... Uh, converted, but I, Jesus here he had the same kind of, of uh, ministry as Isaiah, 
And I don't know all that took place in the councils of heaven. But I think Jesus said the same thing as Isaiah. Here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. Uh, God gave his only son. And the thing is this. The son wanted to be given. He wanted to be poured out for the life of the world. Jesus died and he bled for you. For your sin. And again you might congratulate yourself because you're so moral. Listen. Uh, the Bible says your righteousness is like a pile of filthy rags. It doesn't amount to much. What impresses you doesn't impress the Lord. God wants to impress you with His Son, Jesus Christ, and, and what He did for you in the cross, that He poured Himself out to accomplish what you could never, ever accomplish. And if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior and, and at home at the live stream, please participate in this. If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've been counting on your morality. You've been really hoping that your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds, you know, by 51 to 49% or something like that. That's not the way it works. Whoever told you that uh, was certainly not a Bible reader. The Bible says Christ died for you. The, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. And if you've never done that before, I invite you just to stand up right where you're seated. And by doing that, you're saying, Pastor Tim, I want you to pray with me. I want to yield my life to Jesus Christ. I want to become a Christian today at home in the live stream. Just stand up in your living room. And we're going to bow before God in just a moment. And we're going to pray. And like Isaiah, maybe you're just being touched now for the first time. There is a God. He loves me. He died for me. He gave himself for me. If that, you just stand up right where you're seated. We want to introduce you to Jesus today. Well, at home, uh, if this applies to you, please pray this after me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I need Jesus to save me. I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and I confess that Jesus is Lord. I believe that Jesus died for my sins according to the Scripture. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day according to the Scripture. And I know that if I put my faith in Him, I'll be saved. So Lord, I'm doing that now. Come and cleanse me. Come and forgive me. Come and fill me with the Holy Spirit. And I'll live my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Tim Brown, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Fremont. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week.